Coffee in Space is a podcast by S. Daniel Smith that puts the best in established and up-and-coming science fiction and fantasy writers in front of you, their readers. Dan's goal is to help you learn more about who they are as people, how they write, and how they live. Whether you're listening to this podcast at home, or in your car, or somewhere in between, Dan hopes to transport you to the crew lounge on an intergalactic spaceship, where you can have a cup of your favourite coffee with science fiction and fantasy authors. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy the show. Hi everyone, this is Dan Smith. I'm a big science fiction fan, fantasy fan, and a heavy coffee drinker. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Coffee in Space. I've got Madeline Mosley with me today to talk about a topic near and dear to her heart, post-apocalyptic science fiction. She is also the author of the post-apocalyptic novel First Carrier, which is book one of a trilogy. Madeline, thanks for having Coffee in Space with us today. Thanks for inviting me, Dan. Madeline, let's start by defining the subgenre of post-apocalyptic science fiction. Give us a working definition that you use. Sure. I think at its most basic, I mean, it kind of defines itself. It's science fiction that takes place after the world has somehow ended. And that can take different forms, but in its most basic definition, yeah, sci-fi after the end of the world. And typically the world that you see in post-apocalyptic sci-fi is bleak. Uh, Sometimes you get really interesting things like genetic mutations, extreme weather, rampant violence. And a lot of the time, technology has become almost a mystical thing from a long forgotten past. Not always, but often. And it's really fun in this subgenre to see how both post-apocalyptic and sci-fi tropes interact and combine to create these unique, almost sub-subgenres. So you have zombie fiction, think of World War Z. You have nuclear holocaust fiction, think of Swan Song. And and both of those examples are very sci-fi and very post-apocalyptic. So it's some really cool combination of those ideas. It's the end of the world, but there's sci-fi in it. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. And um, I think it's really important that you pulled out the the word trope because there there is so much post-apocalyptic fiction, science fiction, that they really have developed over time um, certain things that are kind of almost cliche if the author doesn't do them right. And they can just become a, a run-of-the-mill trope if they're not done right. And I appreciate you bringing that out in the definition. Um, why do you like writing in that subgenre? What makes it special for you? I think it started for me a long time ago when I was a kid, as weird as it sounds. I've just always had this morbid fascination with what would I do? Um, If everything went to hell tomorrow, what would I do? And I think a lot of folks who read this genre really like asking themselves that question for whatever reason, whether that's to be prepared or to be thankful for what we currently have. It kind of puts things in perspective for us, but think, okay, what do I grab? Where do we go? Um, what would that look like? What role would I take on? And it's, it's just always been fascinating for me. Um, but beyond that, and really the deeper resonance of why it's, it's, it continues to be a love of mine, is the study of human psychology. I feel like taking mankind all the way back to his basic drives, cutting out all these kind of filters that we have in modern lives of our jobs and politics and social stature, economic position, material possessions, all that, taking all that away and kind of making man go back to the basic drives of 
food, water, safety, companionship. It's really interesting to examine how people react to that um, character-wise and, you know, with real people, but making your characters navigate that territory. And as a psychology nerd with a degree in psychology, I'm all about studying human behavior. I think post-apocalyptic sci-fi is really the perfect medium for that. I like that very much. Uh, I'm not in anywhere as learned as you are, but I also like looking into the what if or the, I wonder if it had gone a different way. Um, I like war fiction. So a lot of mine, uh, you know, what if Germany had done X, Y, Z instead of ABC? What if Japan had invaded here instead of there? What if America had stayed out of the war? Uh, you kind of go just, you know, from there, what if someone had, Elsa dropped a bomb, wrote of Germany had had one too, you know, all these kind of different things. You could really just do anything. I know uh, an author that I've interviewed this year, uh, Ian Douglas, who is the the pen name for, uh, or Bill Keith's pen name, um, writes, you know, on the idea that aliens tried to help Germany. And and I, I've heard that trope before. He does a really good job, by the way, of, of handling that. So at any rate, um, I think what if is probably something we all do at some point. Um, you know, how had, the, well, first of all, we second guess ourselves all the times as humans, you know, in our own lives, much less in the other uh, grander, uh, grander schemes uh, of life. But I think that what if is a really good, uh, important thing to point at. Um, let's talk about world building in the post-apocalyptic uh, frame of reference. Uh, listeners, if you go back to season one, episode 22, uh, that's in August, uh, you will uh, be able to get more about Madeline's specific world building as it relates to her stories. But in a general sense, and feel free to talk about your book as well, how, do, how does someone go about doing world building for post-apocalyptic literature? I think as a writer, you really need to start with your own interests. I mean, you already talked about how you're interested in history, alternate history, um, and how that might influence the end of the world. So I think you start with that. You start with, if you're really interested in politics or nuclear warfare, you start to ask questions. You start to ask, what if? If you're interested in reanimating the dead, you want to go the zombie route? You start asking questions. Um, and then the big, a big one, really, in a lot of post-apocalyptic sci-fi is humanity versus technology or their interdependence upon one another. So start there, um, because I think what you're passionate about is going to make your world much more interesting, if, if it's geared around that. And your world stems out from that. So one of the biggest factors that will affect your post-apocalyptic world is the apocalypse. How did your world end? So my, I guess my best piece of advice for world building in this genre is know your apocalypse, do your homework. Um, yes, you can take a lot of creative liberties, actually, and we do that by nature of science fiction, things that science fiction readers will just take already as, yep, that's believable, things like wormholes and warp speed and, you know, um, all these very theoretical kind of nonsense things, but we take it as gospel because it's established in science fiction. So you can take creative liberties, absolutely. But if you try to convince me as a reader, for example, that five years after a nuclear holocaust, things are pretty normal, I'm not going to believe you. And I've had that issue in reading some post-apocalyptic sci-fi. I'm kind of doing the math in my head. I'm like, um, 
not, I'm not quite with you. <laughs> so yeah, I guess my, my main point of advice would be do your research on whatever kind of apocalypse you're most interested in. And then the world is going to kind of start to unfold for you after that. Yeah, I like that. That's really, that's really good. If, if the apocalypse didn't make sense, then the post-apocalyptic world probably won't make sense either. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and I am making a mental note to go back and work on something I'm writing right now. So thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, making sure you get it right, you're also an editor. What mistakes do writers make when approaching the subgenre and how can they fix them? Talk to the aspiring writers out there or experienced ones who have just started in this genre. Sure. I mean, we kind of touched on it a little. I do recommend doing your research. If you have an idea, question it. And I think a good way to do this is by talking, hopefully you have other people in your life or can somehow connect to other people who have this interest and ask them, what do you think would happen if? And have these people brainstorm with you because people really are fascinated by that. Even if they don't read the subgenre specifically, people like to talk about that stuff for some reason. Um, so I would say, ask people, ask, question yourself, research like a scientist. A lot of writers are not scientists. There are more scientist writers in sci-fi, I think, than there are in other genres. But think like a scientist and take it seriously. So if you need to do your online research, Google is your best friend. Check your sources. And I would also suggest trying to make a couple of scientist buddies, whether you already know some in your life or you can connect with some over something like Quora, other places where people know more than you, because there are a lot of people out there who know more than you. So again, I'm not trying to say science fiction can't have fun. You absolutely should, and you should take creative liberties. But the mistake that I have seen most often is that science fiction and post-apocalyptic science fiction can go from being sci-fi to slipping into this fantasy subgenre because we go from having a scientific explanation of the events to having kind of an abstract fantasy explanation <laughs> where they don't really explain and you know what that's okay if you're cool changing genres science fantasy is a thing but consider if that's what you want to do and do the research and the other thing that I guess I would touch on I wouldn't call it so much a mistake of writers but something that as an editor can kind of get on my nerves is in post-apocalyptic sci-fi we know as the readers going into it as readers of that genre that the world is dark we got it. So don't say it on every page. Don't hit me over the head with how bleak things are. It's grim. It's grim. It's grim. I know. And I think by telling your story eloquently with really great characters, with the events going on, that's a much more natural way to get across the point, to get across the bleakness of the world. And even though your world may be bleak, I think that there is a lot of room and a lot of necessity for points of humor and points of hope. Because if you don't have that, it's just not as much fun to read. If I have nothing to root for and I feel like I'm just screwed, then as a reader, I'm, I don't have a whole lot to invest. So definitely build in hope, humor, all the, some sort of light where you can in the dark. I think it makes a much more well-rounded and interesting post-apocalyptic piece. Both of those points are so important. I just want to make sure I'm catch, capturing them. The idea that you got to research like a scientist so that you don't slip into a more fantastical idea of writing. I think that is unfortunately very easy to do in a, a zombie mysterious virus type thing that just kind of gets washed over. And I don't mean to just say that 
zombie writing is a trope, but I do think it can happen sometimes. Um, and then the, uh, the idea of hope, I have to have a reason to want to, like, I need to want to read this story. And if there's no hope involved, I mean, personally, I'm not going to read it uh, in the end. I got to, I got to root for somebody. Like you said, I got to, I got to want this story to move forward. And if it's just, Oh, by the way, and we all die at the end anyway, that's just not enough. <laughs> so I like both of those points. Um, we're going to do a little give and take here. Listeners, it's a little different than I normally do it. Um, I'm going to ask Madeline about some of her favorite post-apocalyptic books. And then I'm going to give a couple of mine. And really, we're just both giving recommendations for you to go read if you like the genre. Uh, Madeline, take it away. What, what are some of your favorite post-apocalyptic books? And tell us a little bit about one or two of them. Sure. Um, two that come to my mind that I enjoyed more recently was The Girl with All the Gifts by M.R. Carey. Um, and I can go into more detail, but you just kind of touched on it. I love the science behind this one. It is a zombie for all intents and purposes. It's a zombie novel, but I really love the research that went behind it. What I feel like was the research that went behind it. And then A Boy and His Dog at the End of the World by C.A. Fletcher. And what I really enjoyed about that is how humanity is examined. It really gets into that psychology stuff that I like to nerd out about. And I think it's very important for post-apocalyptic sci-fi to feel free to explore. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I'm reading more, or I have read. These are like back-in-the-day favorites that just keep coming up. Um, I am more of a war military fiction type person, as we've uh, discussed previously on this episode and other episodes or the other episode um i like military fiction i like asking my what ifs uh around that area and longtime listeners will remember that i've interviewed david brin who is the author of the postman i uh so that's one of my books the postman i think it's a very good post uh world has gone to hell type book and um but not so far along that um it's unrecognizable, I guess, I would say. And then the other one that's also a military-esque uh, post-apocalyptic, uh, it really is kind of, I'll be honest, it is kind of the world's actually going to die. But there's even, even there, I promise the listeners, there's a little hope. It's called uh, On the Beach, and it's by Neville Shute. He's uh, unfortunately passed on. Um, uh, it was written back in 1957. So it's old fiction, but it's one of the first... Uh, introductions I had to the idea of this nuclear, you know, post world uh, with the nuclear Holocaust. And I really enjoyed it. So both of those books had, they did a fair amount of assuming um, that the apocalypse happened uh, the way that we thought it did uh, later models. I mean, people still do models on nuclear war, even though it's, it's not as much of a foregone conclusion anymore. Uh, so some of the things that were written about in the novels probably wouldn't have happened the way they did, uh, but I still think they're really good pieces of fiction. I recommend them. Uh, so let's talk about one, pick one of them that you uh, you mentioned there, Madeline, and give us a, a more in-depth synopsis, uh, whichever one you want, or both for all, I, for all that matters. <laughs> well, I'll start with uh, A Boy and His Dog at the End of the World. Um, the synopsis is very elegant because it is so simple. So we have a young hero named Grizz. And in this novel, there are hints at what caused the end of the world. And it's kind of a forgotten past. It happened so long ago. Um, They don't tell you straight out, but the author does mention the gelding 
and it devastated the world's population so that now on earth there are only thousands of people left alive, thousands. So I love the simple premise and the premise is that someone takes Grizz's dog and Grizz is going to get her back. And it's so, as, as an editor, <laughs> I love that because I know exactly what this book's about and I know what to expect from it. And it is powerful. Um, as a dog lover, I think that's powerful. And so Grizz embarks across miles and miles of dangerous, unknown terrain alone, except with one of his dogs, Jip, as they seek his other dog who was taken, Jeff, Jeff, Jess, and the thief that took her. Um, so very simple premise, but there's a lot of room in there for kind of raw emotion and right and wrong, which is pretty fascinating. That sounds fascinating. I went out to get a hold of the book and, uh, and read it myself. Uh, I would pick uh, for this more in-depth discussion, uh, Neville shoots um, on the beach. Uh, the story is set primarily in and around Melbourne, Australia. I had never been there. I actually still haven't been there, but I've been to Australia a few times. Uh, but as a kid growing up, I, I was fascinated with foreign countries. And so this was set in Melbourne, Australia, and that made me very, uh, that fascinated me a great deal. It's set in 1963. World War III has devastated most of the populated world, uh, polluting the atmosphere with nuclear fallout. Uh, so you have your nuclear winter type concept. It's killing all human and animal life in the Northern Hemisphere, which is where most of the, at that time at least, the uh, nuclear wielding countries were. The war began with a nuclear attack on Albania, uh, by Albania on Italy, and then escalated with the bombing of the United States and the United Kingdom by Egypt. But because the aircraft used in the attacks were obtained from the then Soviet Union, the Soviets were mistakenly blamed, triggering a retaliatory strike on the Soviet Union by NATO. And it kind of just goes from there, but uh, it details an American submarine crew who is basically running from this nuclear fallout, and they're just trying to find the last, kind of the last bastion of humanity. Um, but there is a lot of, there is still hope in there. I promise I made it sound really, really dark. I apologize for that. But um, but it's a really good book. Um, and kind of not classic per se as far as uh, science fiction is concerned. But but anyway, uh, back to the, back to a boy and his dog at the end of the world. Uh, I'm personally hooked, even though I haven't read the book. So that's, uh, you know, I truly am. I'm very interested in it. In fact, by the time this airs, I probably will have already read it. But what makes, how did, why did you latch on to it? Like, did, did you fall in love with the main character? Are you a dog lover? Like, what, what, what brought you to the story? I think that really beautiful premise from the back cover copy definitely got me to read the book. Um, and yes, I am a dog lover, so that tugged at my heartstrings that somebody took this person's dog and they are going to get the dog back. So I was intrigued by that. And I, as much as I didn't want to take the risk in case the dog died, I wanted to see um, if the character got their dog back. And I think when I, once I got into the book, it was seeing through this young person's eyes, seeing really bleak things, humanity through a relatively naive perspective. Grizz has been around his family forever and nobody else. Um, so as Grizz goes on this journey, not only we're, we're in Grizz's head most of the time, which is different than the kind of books I usually like to read. I like third person where we're getting some more perspectives, but um, it's, so it's first person, we're in Grizz's head, and it's this kind of beautiful look at 
this catastrophe through this young person's point of view. And Grizz meets all these other people, including, I say meet, sees a bunch of dead people. And every corpse, that sounds so dark, every corpse that Grizz comes across has a story. You can tell from the, the objects around, what's going on, from the little bit of history that Grizz knows what happened here. So that's really interesting to me too. You got to kind of see what happened through storytelling, which is how I always like to find out. I don't really like the history lesson up front. I like it to unfold for me. So yeah, it's, it's a cool way to approach the heavy topic of the end of the world is by looking through people, which is my passion anyway. Some warnings for people who might want to read the book. Pacing, it is slower. Again, isn't what I normally go for, but it, it kept me reading. There's some unconventional language, especially in the dialogue. So if you like audiobooks at all, I recommend going that route. So it makes it a little easier to digest. And then I'd be curious what y'all think about the twist at the end. I'm still a little unsure about it, but I won't spoil it. So you have to read it for yourselves to see if you like it. As if I didn't need another reason to go get this book. <laughs> you have now double sold me on it. Um, all right. Yeah, I can't even compete with that. I was going to give an answer, uh, a like-minded answer on one of my my options, but I'm not going to do that now because you just kind of kind of took the wind out of my sails. I got to go get that book. Um, okay, so you are a post-apocalyptic science fiction writer, both in your short stories, which by the way are available for uh, new subscribers to Madeline's email list, uh, but you also in your novel, which is available now, you write a post-apocalyptic world. Would you please describe that for us? Sure. Um, my post-apocalyptic world takes place, the story starts in the year 2414, which in my history is about 250 years after what I call the fall of technology. And that involved multi-layered catastrophes, which I think is always much more interesting and, and maybe even more plausible than one big thing. So a multi-layered catastrophe that turned the world into a really harsh place. It changed the weather. <laughs> um, you've got lack of resources. You've got dark heart of man kind of out there in, the, in this bleak world. But some people have created a new world out of it. Um, there are small communities who, who rely on each other and share a trade. There are marauders kind of playing with that trope and, and exploring it a little bit. Um, marauders who live by taking what they want and where killing a, is a badge of honor, more or less, a rite of passage. And they have a really uh, deep kind of tribal clan mentality, family. And then there's the disc, which is the biggest civilized city um, in the known world. And they view themselves as superior to those outside of their walls. And you'll see some strained relationships between all of these different groups of people. Then there are some people who live outside of these established bits of society, and they take their chances in what I call the open, like two of our main characters, Ren and Survivor. And the ruler of the disc is really fixated on reclaiming this lost technology, technology that we haven't seen for centuries. And when he meets Ren, he discovers that she has some of it in her DNA, and he intends to use it. I want to ask a follow-up question. Thanks for sharing your book with us. Mm -hmm. Um, without giving spoilers, can you explain a little bit more about what the tech in the DNA is? Uh, I meant to ask you that in season one, episode 21, and I forgot. So can you talk about the DNA a little bit? 
Sure. Um, so a lot of the technology, is, as far as the, the world that was lost, the pre-apocalyptic world, it was a future world from our current world today. So they had a lot of technology that right now is really based in theory and maybe some minor use, but mostly in theory. So it's a bit of this technology that was generated then for a particular purpose um, that I won't go into, but it turns out that Ren still has it in her genetics. They found a way back in pre-apocalyptic days to put bits of technology, things that we might even think are pretty simple, things like energy, into people's DNA and use it that way as a human being. So integrating the two things that really have a, an interdependence on each other, technology and humanity. And so Ren has a little bit of it and we don't really know how much or what it's going to do, but we know that this, for better lack of, for lack of a better word, bad guy wants to exploit it. Thank you so much for uh, going into that. Um, it's, it's a great concept. I, I, I'm, I look like an idiot on the video, but I just, uh, it's a good concept. I, I'm really excited about that. That's really cool. Um, Madeline, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate having you uh, on the podcast today. I've enjoyed our chat. In the final few minutes we have, tell people how they can find out more about you and your work. Sure. I mean, thank you so much for having me. Um, the best place to find out more is simply at my website, madelinemosley.com, and you'll get a cool freebie by signing up for my newsletter. Uh, you can get that trio of short stories for free. And those short stories take place 10 years before the events in First Carrier featuring the three main characters. Then you'll also be able to stay in the loop about my writing. And of course, I hope you'll go check out First Carrier. How often do you send out your newsletter on generally, average? Yeah, generally just once a month. Um, around book launches, things get a little more crazy. But yeah, try not to spam folks. That's for Yeah, sure. that's, I think that, that's actually exactly why I brought that up. Uh, it's not going to she's not going to dump an email into your inbox every day. So no. uh, go get these, the freebies. I've got them. They're good stories and they'll get you, uh, they'll get your interest peaked on the, the book itself. Um, okay. So, and I will link to all that uh, in the show notes. If you're listening to this in your vehicle or at your office desk and can't look it up. Um, anyway, thanks for being my guest today, Madeline. I really appreciate that. Thank you all for listening to this episode Take a look at Madeline's book, where you buy your books, and be sure to subscribe to the Coffee in Space podcast. I'm Dan Smith, and I can't wait till we meet again over a cup of coffee in space. Mm -hmm.